Story Eight of the Best British Short Stories of 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. The Best British Short Stories of 1922 by Various. Story Eight: Seaton's Aunt by Walter de la Mer from the London Mercury, 1922. Part One. I had heard rumors of Seaton's aunt long before I actually encountered her. Seaton, in the hush of confidence, or at any little show of toleration on our part, would remark my aunt, or my old aunt, you know, as if his relative might be a kind of cement to an entente cordiale. He had an unusual quantity of pocket-money, or at any rate it was bestowed on him in unusually large amounts, and he spent it freely, though none of us would have described him as an awfully generous chap. "'Hello, Seaton,' he would say, "'the old Begum.' At the beginning of term, too, he used to bring back surprising and exotic dainties in a box with a trick padlock that accompanied him from his first appearance at Gummidge's in a billycock hat to the rather abrupt conclusion of his school days. From a boy's point of view, he looked distastefully foreign, with his yellow skin and slow chocolate-colored eyes and lean, weak figure. Merely for his looks, he was treated by most of us true blue Englishmen with condescension, hostility, or contempt. We used to call him Pongo, but without any better excuse for the nickname than his skin. He was, that is, in one sense of the term what he assuredly was not in the other sense, a sport. Seaton and I were never in any sense intimate at school. Our orbits only intersected in class. I kept instinctively aloof from him. I felt vaguely he was a sneak and remained quite unmollified by advances on his side, which, in a boy's barbarous fashion, unless it suited me to be magnanimous, I haughtily ignored. We were, both of us, quick-footed, and at prisoner's base used occasionally to hide together. And so I best remember Seaton, his narrow watchful face in the dusk of summer evening, his peculiar crouch, and his inarticulate whisperings and mumblings. Otherwise he played all games slackly and limply, used to stand and feed at his locker with a crony or two until his tuck gave out, or waste his money on some outlandish fancy or other. He bought, for instance, a silver bangle which he wore above his left elbow, until some of the fellows showed their masterly contempt of the practice by dropping it, nearly red-hot, down his neck. It needed, therefore, a rather peculiar taste, a rather rare kind of schoolboy courage and indifference to criticism, to be much associated with him. And I had neither the taste nor the courage. Nonetheless, he did make advances, and on one memorable occasion went to the length of bestowing on me a whole pot of some outlandish mulberry-colored jelly that had been duplicated in his term's supplies. In the exuberance of my gratitude, I promised to spend the next half-term holiday with him at his aunt's house. I had clean forgotten my promise when, two or three days before the holidays, he came up and triumphantly reminded me of it. "'Well, to tell you the honest truth, Seaton, old chap,' I began graciously, but he cut me short. "'My aunt expects you,' he said. "'She is very glad you are coming. She's sure to be quite decent to you, Withers.' I looked at him in some astonishment. The emphasis was unexpected. It seemed to suggest an aunt not hitherto hinted at, and a friendly feeling on Seaton's side that was more disconcerting than welcome. We reached his home partly by train, partly by a lift in an empty farm cart, and partly by walking. It was a whole-day holiday, and we were to sleep the night. He lent me extraordinary night-gear, I remember, 
The village street was unusually wide, and was fed from a green by two converging roads, with an inn and a high green sign at the corner. About a hundred yards down the street was a chemist's shop, Mr. Tanner's. We descended the two steps into his dusky and odorous interior to buy, I remember, some rat poison. A little beyond the chemist's was the forge. You then walked along a very narrow path under a fairly high wall, nodding here and there with weeds and tufts of grass, and so came to the iron garden gates, and saw the high flat house behind its huge sycamore. A coach-house stood on the left of the house, and on the right a gate led into a kind of rambling orchard. The lawn lay away over to the left again, and at the bottom, for the whole garden sloped gently to a sluggish and rushy, pond-like stream, was a meadow. We arrived at noon, and entered the gates out of the hot dust beneath the glitter of the dark-curtained windows. Seaton led me at once through the little garden gate to show me his tadpole pond, swarming with what, being myself not the least bit of a naturalist, I considered the most horrible creatures, of all shapes, consistencies, and sizes, but with whom Seaton seemed to be on the most intimate of terms. I can see his absorbed face now as he sat on his heels and fished the slimy things out in his sallow palms. Wearying at last of his pets, we loitered about a while in an aimless fashion. Seaton seemed to be listening, or at any rate waiting, for something to happen, or for someone to come. But nothing did happen, and no one came. That was just like Seaton. Anyhow, the first view I got of his aunt was when, at the summons of a distant gong, we turned from the garden, very hungry and thirsty, to go into luncheon. We were approaching the house when Seaton suddenly came to a standstill. Indeed, I have always had the impression that he plucked at my sleeve. Something, at least, seemed to catch me back, as it were, as he cried, "'Look out! There she is!' She was standing in an upper window, which opened wide on a hinge, and at first sight she looked an excessively tall and overwhelming figure. This, however, was mainly because the window reached all but to the floor of her bedroom. She was, in reality, rather an undersized woman, in spite of her long face and big head. She must have stood, I think, unusually still, with eyes fixed on us, though this impression may be due to Seaton's sudden warning and to my consciousness of the cautious and subdued air that had fallen on him at sight of her. I know that without the least reason in the world I felt a kind of guiltiness, as if I had been caught. There was a silvery star pattern sprinkled on her black silk dress and even from the ground I could see the immense coils of her hair and the rings on her left hand, which was held fingering the small jet buttons of her bodice. She watched our united advance without stirring, until, imperceptibly, her eyes raised and lost themselves in the distance, so that it was out of an assumed reverie that she appeared suddenly to awaken to our presence beneath her when we drew close to the house. "'So this is your friend, Mr. Smithers, I suppose,' she said, bobbing to me. "'Withers, aunt,' said Seaton. "'It's much the same,' she said, with her eyes fixed on me. "'Come in, Mr. Withers, and bring him along with you.' She continued to gaze at me, at least I think she did so. I know that the fixity of her scrutiny and her ironical Mr made me feel peculiarly uncomfortable. But she was extremely kind and attentive to me, though perhaps her kindness and attention showed up more vividly against her complete neglect of Seaton. Only one remark that I have any recollection of she made to him. When I look at my nephew, Mr. Smithers, I realize that dust we are and dust shall become. You are hot, dirty, and incorrigible, Arthur." She sat at the head of the table, Seaton at the foot, and I before a wide waste of damask tablecloth between them. 
It was an old and rather close dining room, with windows thrown wide to the green garden and a wonderful cascade of fading roses. Miss Seaton's great chair faced this window, so that its rose-reflected light shone full on her yellowish face, and on just such chocolate eyes as my schoolfellows, except that hers were more than half covered by unusually long and heavy lids. There she sat, eating, with those sluggish eyes fixed for the most part on my face. Above them stood the deep-lined fork between her eyebrows, and above that the wide expanse of a remarkable brow beneath its strange steep bank of hair. The lunch was copious, and consisted, I remember, of all such dishes as are generally considered mischievous and too good for the schoolboy digestion, lobster mayonnaise, cold game sausages, an immense veal and ham pie, forced with eggs and numerous delicious flavors, besides sauces, kickshaws, creams, and sweetmeats. We even had wine, a half-glass, of old darkish sherry, each. Miss Seaton enjoyed and indulged an enormous appetite. Her example, and a natural schoolboy veracity, soon overcame my nervousness of her, even to the extent of allowing me to enjoy to the best of my bent so rare a spread. Seaton was singularly modest. The greater part of his meal consisted of almonds and raisins, which he nibbled surreptitiously, and as if he found difficulty in swallowing them. I don't mean that Miss Seaton conversed with me. She merely scattered trenchant remarks, and now and then twinkled a baited question over my head. But her face was like a dense and involved accompaniment to her talk. She presently dropped the Mr., to my intense relief, and called me now Withers, or Wither, now Smithers, and even once towards the close of the meal distinctly Johnson, though how on earth my name suggested it, or whose face mine had reanimated in memory, I cannot conceive. "'And is Arthur a good boy at school, Mr. Wither?' was one of her many questions. Does he please his masters? Is he first in his class? What does the Reverend Dr. Gummidge think of him, eh? I knew she was jeering at him, but her face was adamant against the least flicker of sarcasm or facetiousness. I gazed fixedly at a blushing crescent of lobster. I think you're eighth, aren't you, Seaton? Seaton moved his small pupils towards his aunt but she continued to gaze with a kind of concentrated detachment at me. "'Arthur will never make a brilliant scholar, I fear,' she said, lifting a dexterously burdened fork to her wide mouth. After luncheon she preceded me up to my bedroom. It was a jolly little bedroom, with a brass fender and rugs and a polished floor, on which it was possible, I afterwards found, to play snowshoes. Over the washstand was a little black-framed water-colored drawing depicting a large eye with an extremely fish-like intensity in the spark of light on the dark pupil, and in illuminated lettering beneath was printed very minutely, Thou God seest me, followed by a long-looped monogram, S.S., in the corner. The other pictures were all of the sea, brigs on blue water, a schooner overtopping chalk cliffs, a rocky island of prodigious steepness, with two tiny sailors dragging a monstrous boat up a shelf of beach. This is the room, Withers, my brother William died in when a boy. Admire the view. I looked out of the window across the treetops. It was a day hot with sunshine over the green fields and the cattle were standing swishing their tails in the shallow water. But the view at the moment was only exaggeratedly vivid, because I was horribly dreading that she would presently inquire after my luggage, and I had not brought even a toothbrush. I need have had no fear. 
Hers was not that highly civilized type of mind that is stuffed with sharp material details. Nor could her ample presence be described as in the least motherly. I would never consent to question a schoolfellow behind my nephew's back, she said, standing in the middle of the room. But tell me, Smithers, why is Arthur so unpopular? You, I understand, are his only close friend. She stood in a dazzle of sun, and out of it her eyes regarded me with such leaden penetration beneath their thick lids that I doubt if my face concealed the least thought from her. But there, there, she added very suavely, stooping her head a little, don't trouble to answer me. I never extort an answer. Boys are queer fish. Brains might perhaps have suggested his washing his hands before luncheon, but not my choice, Smithers. God forbid. And now perhaps you would like to go into the garden again. I cannot actually see from here, but I should not be surprised if Arthur is now skulking behind that hedge. He was. I saw his head come out and take a rapid glance at the windows. Join him, Mr. Smithers. We shall meet again, I hope, at the tea-table. The afternoon I spend in retirement. Whether or not Seaton and I had not been long engaged with the aid of two green switches in riding round and round a lumbering old grey horse we found in the meadow, before a rather bunched-up figure appeared, walking along the field-path on the other side of the water, with a magenta parasol studiously lowered in our direction throughout her slow progress, as if that were the magnetic needle and we the fixed pole. Seaton at once lost all nerve in his riding. At the next lurch of the old mare's heels he toppled over into the grass, and I slid off the sleek broad back to join him, where he stood, rubbing his shoulder, and sourly watching the rather pompous figure till it was out of sight. "'Was that your aunt, Seaton?' I inquired. "'But not till then.' He nodded. "'Why didn't she take any notice of us, then?' "'She never does.' "'Why not?' "'Oh, she knows all right, without. That's the damn awful part of it.' Seaton was about the only fellow in Gummidge's who ever had the ostentation to use bad language. He had suffered for it, too. But it wasn't, I think, bravado. I believe he really felt certain things more intensely than most of the other fellows, and they were generally things that fortunate and average people do not feel at all, the peculiar quality, for instance, of the British schoolboy's imagination. I tell you, Withers, he went on moodily, slinking across the meadow with his hands covered up in his pockets, she sees everything and what she doesn't see, she knows without. But how, I said, not because I was much interested, but because the afternoon was so hot and tiresome and purposeless, and it seemed more of a bore to remain silent. Seaton turned gloomily, and spoke in a very low voice. Don't appear to be talking of her, if you wouldn't mind. It's because she's in league with the devil." He nodded his head and stooped to pick up a round flat pebble. I tell you, he said, still stooping, you fellows don't realize what it is. I know I'm a bit close and all that, but so would you be if you had that old hag listening to every thought you think. I looked at him, then turned and surveyed one by one the windows of the house. Where's your pater? I said awkwardly. Dead ages and ages ago, and my mother, too. She's not my aunt by rights. What is she, then? I mean, she's not my mother's sister, because my grandmother married twice, and she's one of the first lot. I don't know what you call her, but anyhow, she's not my real aunt. She gives you plenty of pocket money. Seaton looked steadfastly at me out of his flat eyes. She can't give me what's mine. When I come of age, half of the whole lot will be mine. And what's more, he turned his back on the house, 
I'll make her hand over every blessed shilling of it. I put my hands in my pockets and stared at Seaton. Is it much? He nodded. Who told you? He got suddenly very angry. A darkish red came into his cheeks, his eyes glistened, but he made no answer, and we loitered listlessly about the garden until it was time for tea. Seaton's aunt was wearing an extraordinary kind of lace jacket when we sidled sheepishly into the drawing-room together. She greeted me with a heavy and protracted smile, and bade me bring a chair close to the little table. "'I hope Arthur has made you feel at home,' she said, as she handed me my cup in her crooked hand. "'He don't talk much to me, but then I'm an old woman. You must come again with her and draw him out of his shell. You old snail!' She wagged her head at Seaton, who sat munching cake and watching her intently. "'And we must correspond, perhaps.' She nearly shut her eyes at me. You must write and tell me everything behind the creature's back. I confess I found her rather disquieting company. The evening drew on. Lamps were brought by a man with a nondescript face and very quiet footsteps. Seaton was told to bring out the chessmen, and we played a game, she and I, with her big chin thrust over the board at every move, as she gloated over the pieces, and occasionally croaked, CHECK, after which she would sit back inscrutably staring at me. But the game was never finished. She simply hemmed me defenselessly in with a cloud of men that held me impotent, and yet one and all refused to administer to my poor flustered old king a merciful coup de grace. There, she said, as the clock struck ten, a drawn game, Withers. We are very evenly matched. A very credible defense, Withers. You know your room. There's supper on a tray in the dining-room. Don't let the creature overeat himself. The gong will sound three-quarters of an hour before a punctual breakfast. She held out her cheek to Seaton, and he kissed it with obvious perfunctoriness. With me she shook hands. An excellent game, she said cordially, but my memory is poor, and she swept the pieces helter-skelter into the box. The result will never be known. She raised her great head far back. Ah! Huh? It was a kind of challenge, and I could only murmur, Oh, I was absolutely in a hole, you know, when she burst out laughing and waved us both out of the room. Seaton and I stood and ate our supper, with one candlestick to light us, in a corner of the dining-room. "'Well, and how would you like it?' he said very softly, after cautiously poking his head round the doorway. "'Like what?' "'Being spied on. Every blessed thing you do and think.' Well, "'I shouldn't like it at all,' I said, if she does. "'And yet you let her smash you up at chess.' I didn't let her, I said indignantly. Well, you funked it then. And I didn't funk it either, I said. She's so jolly clever with her nights. Seaton stared fixedly at the candle. You wait, that's all, he said slowly, and we went upstairs to bed. I had not been long in bed, I think, when I was cautiously awakened by a touch on my shoulder and there was Seaton's face in the candlelight and his eyes looking into mine. "'What's up?' I said, rising quickly to my elbow. "'Don't scurry,' he whispered, "'or she'll hear. I'm sorry for waking you, but I didn't think you'd be asleep so soon.' "'Why? What's the time, then?' Seaton wore, what was then rather unusual, a night-suit and he hauled his big silver watch out of the pocket in his jacket. It's a quarter to twelve. I never get to sleep before twelve, not here. What do you do, then? Oh, I read. And listen. Listen? Seaton stared into his candle-flame as if he were listening even then. You can't guess what it is. All you read in ghost stories, that's all rot. You can't see much, Withers, 
but you know all the same. Know what? Why, that they're there. Who's there? I asked, fretfully glancing at the door. Why, in the house. It swarms with them. Just you stand still and listen outside my bedroom door in the middle of the night. I have, dozens of times. They're all over the place. Look here, Seaton, I said. You asked me to come here, and I didn't mind chucking up a leave just to oblige you, and because I'd promised. But don't get talking a lot of rot, that's all, or you'll know the difference when we get back. Don't fret, he said coldly, turning away. I shan't be at school long, and what's more, you're here now, and there isn't anybody else to talk to. I'll chance the other. Look here, Seaton, I said. You may think you're going to scare me with a lot of stuff about voices and all that, but I'll just thank you to clear out, and you may please yourself about pottering about all night. He made no answer. He was standing by the dressing-table, looking across his candle into the looking-glass. He turned and stared slowly round the walls. Even this room's nothing more than a coffin. I suppose she told you— it's all exactly the same as when my brother William died. Trust her for that. And good luck to him, say I. Look at that. He raised his candle close to the little watercolor I have mentioned. There's hundreds of eyes like that in the house. And even if God does see you, he takes precious good care you don't see him. And it's just the same with them. I tell you what, Withers, I'm getting sick of all this. I shan't stand it much longer." The house was silent within and without, and even in the yellowish radiance of the candle a faint silver showed through the open window on my blind. I slipped off the bedclothes, wide awake, and sat irresolute on the bedside. "'I know you're only guying me,' I said angrily. "'But why is the house full of—what you say?' Why do you hear—? What, what do you hear? Tell me that, you silly foal." Seaton sat down on a chair and rested his candlestick on his knee. He blinked at me calmly. "'She brings them,' he said, with lifted eyebrows. "'Who? Your aunt?' He nodded. "'How?' "'I told you,' he answered pettishly. "'She's in league. You don't know.' She's as good as killed my mother. I know that. But it's not only her by a long chalk. She just sucks you dry. I know. And that's what she'll do for me. Because I'm like her. Like my mother, I mean. She simply hates to see me alive. I wouldn't be like that old she-wolf for a million pounds. And so, he broke off with a comprehensive wave of his candlestick, they're always here. Ah, my boy, wait till she's dead. She'll hear something then, I can tell you. It's all very well now, but wait till then. I wouldn't be in her shoes when she has to clear out for something. Don't you go and believe I care for ghosts or whatever you like to call them. We're all in the same box. We're all under her thumb." He was looking almost nonchalantly at the ceiling at the moment when I saw his face change, saw his eyes suddenly drop like shot birds, and fix themselves on the cranny of the door he had just left ajar. Even from where I sat I could see his color change. He went greenish. He crouched without stirring, simply fixed, and I, scarcely daring to breathe, sat with creeping skin simply watching him. His hands relaxed, and he gave a kind of sigh. "'Was that one?' I whispered, with a timid show of jauntiness. He looked round, opened his mouth, and nodded. "'What?' I said. He jerked his thumb with meaningful eyes, and I knew that he meant that his aunt had been there listening at our door cranny. Look here, Seaton, I said once more, wiggling to my feet. You may think I'm a jolly noodle, just as you please, 
but your aunt has been civil to me and all that, and I don't believe a word you say about her, that's all, and never did. Every fellow's a bit off his pluck at night, and you may think it a fine sport to try your rubbish on me. I heard your aunt come upstairs before I fell asleep, and I'll bet you a level tanner she's in bed now. What's more, you can keep your blessed ghosts to yourself. It's a guilty conscience, I should think. Seaton looked at me curiously, without answering for a moment. I'm not a liar, Withers, but I'm not going to quarrel, either. You're the only chap I care a button for, or, at any rate, you're the only chap that's ever come here, and it's something to tell a fellow what you feel. I don't care a fig for fifty thousand ghosts, although I swear on my solemn oath that I know they're here. But she—he turned deliberately—you laid a tanner she's in bed, Withers. Well, I know different. She's never in bed much of the night, and I'll prove it, too, just to show you I'm not such a nolly as you think I am. Come on. Come on where? Why, to see. I hesitated. He opened a large cupboard and took out a small dark dressing-gown and a kind of shawl jacket. He threw the jacket on the bed and put on the gown. His dusky face was colorless, and I could see by the way he fumbled at the sleeves he was shivering. But it was no good showing the white feather now, so I threw the tasseled shawl over my shoulders, and leaving our candle brightly burning on the chair, we went out together and stood in the corridor. "'Now, then, listen,' Seaton whispered. We stood leaning over the staircase. It was like leaning over a well, so still and chill the air was all around us. But presently, as I suppose happens in most old houses, began to echo and answer in my ears a medley of infinite small stirrings and whisperings. Now, out of the distance, an old timber would relax its fibres, or a scurry die away behind the perishing wainscot. But amid and behind such sounds as these, I seemed to begin to be conscious, as it were, of the lightest of footfalls, sounds as faint as the vanishing remembrance of voices in a dream. Seaton was all in obscurity except his face. Out of that his eyes gleamed darkly, watching me. "'You'd hear, too, in time, my fine soldier,' he muttered. "'Come on!' He descended the stairs, slipping his lean fingers lightly along the balusters. He turned to the right at the loop, and I followed him barefooted along a thickly carpeted corridor. At the end stood a door ajar and from here we very stealthily and in complete blackness ascended five narrow stairs. Seaton, with immense caution, slowly pushed open a door, and we stood together looking into a great pool of duskiness, out of which, lit by the feeble clearness of a night-light, rose a vast bed. A heap of clothes lay on the floor. Beside them two slippers dozed, with noses each to each, two yards apart. Somewhere a little clock ticked huskily. There was a rather close smell of lavender and eau de cologne, mingled with the fragrance of ancient sachets, soap, and drugs. Yet it was a scent even more peculiarly commingled than that. And the bed! I stared warily in. It was mounded gigantically and it was empty. Seaton turned a vague pale face, all shadows. "'What did I say?' he muttered. "'Who's who's the fool now?' I say. "'How are we going to get back without meeting her?' I say. "'Answer me that. Oh, I wish to goodness you hadn't come here, Withers.' He stood visibly shivering in his skimpy gown, and could hardly speak for his teeth chattering and very distinctly, in the hush that followed his whisper, I heard approaching a faint, unhurried, voluminous rustle. Seaton clutched my arm, dragged me to the right across the room to a large cupboard, 
and drew the door close to on us. And presently, as with bursting lungs I peeped out into the long, low, curtained bedroom, waddled in that wonderful great head and body. I can see her now, all patched and lined with shadow, her tied-up hair, she must have had enormous quantities of it for so old a woman, her heavy lids above those flat, slow, vigilant eyes. She just passed across my kin in the vague dusk, but the bed was out of sight. We waited on and on, listening to the clock's muffled ticking. Not the ghost of a sound rose up from the great bed. Either she lay archly listening, or slept a sleep serener than an infant's. And when, it seemed, we had been hours in hiding and were cramped, chilled, and half-suffocated, we crept out on all fours, with terror knocking at our ribs, and so down the five narrow stairs and back to the little candlelit blue and gold bedroom. Once there, Seaton gave in. He sat livid on a chair with closed eyes. Here, I said, shaking his arm, I'm going to bed. I've had enough of this foolery. I'm going to bed. His lids quivered, but he made no answer. I poured out some water into my basin, and, with that cold, pictured azure eye fixed on us, bespattered Seaton's sallow face and forehead, and dabbled his hair. He presently sighed and opened fish-like eyes. "'Come on,' I said. "'Don't get shamming. There's a good chap. Get on my back, if you like, and I'll carry you into your bedroom.' He waved me away and stood up. So, with my candle in one hand, I took him under the arm and walked him along according to his direction down the corridor. His was a much dingier room than mine, and littered with boxes, paper, cages, and clothes. I huddled him into bed and turned to go. And suddenly, I can hardly explain it now, a kind of cold and deadly terror swept over me. I almost ran out of the room, with eyes fixed rigidly in front of me, blew out my candle, and buried my head under the bedclothes. When I awoke, roused by a long-continued tapping at my door, sunlight was raying in on cornice and bedpost, and birds were singing in the garden. I got up, ashamed of the night's folly, dressed quickly, and went downstairs. The breakfast-room was sweet with flowers and fruit and honey. Seaton's aunt was standing in the garden beside the open French window, feeding a great flutter of birds. I watched her for a moment, unseen. Her face was set in a deep reverie beneath the shadow of a big loose sun-hat. It was deeply lined, crooked, and in a way I can't describe fixedly vacant and strange. I coughed, and she turned at once with a prodigious smile to inquire how I had slept. And in that mysterious way by which we learn each other's secret thoughts without a sentence spoken, I knew that she had followed every word and movement of the night before, and was triumphing over my affected innocence and ridiculing my friendly and too easy advances. We returned to school, Seaton and I, lavishly laden, and by rail all the way. I made no reference to the obscure talk we had had, and resolutely refused to meet his eyes, or to take up the hints he let fall. I was relieved, and yet I was sorry, to be going back and strode on as fast as I could from the station, with Seaton almost trotting at my heels. But he insisted on buying more fruit and sweets, my share of which I accepted with a very bad grace. It was uncomfortably like a bribe, and, after all, I had no quarrel with his rum old aunt, and hadn't really believed half the stuff he had told me. I saw as little of him as I could after that. He never referred to our visit or resumed his confidences, 
though in class I would sometimes catch his eye fixed on mine, full of a mute understanding, which I easily affected not to understand. He left Gummidge's, as I have said, rather abruptly, though I never heard of anything to his discredit, and I did not see him or have any news of him again till by chance we met one summer's afternoon in the Strand. He was dressed rather oddly in a coat too large for him and a bright silky tie, but we instantly recognized one another under the awning of a cheap jeweler's shop. He immediately attached himself to me and dragged me off, not too cheerfully, to lunch with him at an Italian restaurant nearby. He chattered about our old school, which he remembered only with dislike and disgust, told me cold-bloodedly of the disastrous fate of one or two of the old fellows who had been among his chief tormentors, insisted on an expensive wine and the whole gamut of the rich menu, and finally informed me, with a good deal of niggling, that he had come up to town to buy an engagement ring. And, of course, how is your aunt? I inquired at last. He seemed to have been awaiting the question. It fell like a stone into a deep pool. So many expressions flitted across his long, un-English face. She's aged a good deal, he said softly, and broke off. She's been very decent, he continued presently after, and paused again in a way. He eyed me fleetingly. I dare say you heard that she, that is, that we, had lost a good deal of money. No, I said. Oh, yes, said Seaton, and paused again. And somehow, poor fellow, I knew in the clink and clatter of glass and voices that he had lied to me, that he did not possess, and never had possessed, a penny beyond what his aunt had squandered on his too ample allowance of pocket-money. "'And uh, the ghosts?' I inquired quizzically. He grew instantly solemn, and, though it may have been my fancy, slightly yellowed. "'But you are making game of me, Withers,' was all he said. He asked for my address, and I rather reluctantly gave him my card. Look here, Withers, he said, as we stood in the sunlight on the thronging curb, saying good-bye. Here I am, and it's all very well. I'm not perhaps as fanciful as I was. But you are practically the only friend I have on earth, except Alice. And there, to make a clean breast of it, I'm not sure that my aunt cares much about my getting married. She doesn't say so, of course. You know her well enough for that. He looked sidelong at the rattling, gaudy traffic. "'What I was going to say is this. Would you mind coming down? You needn't stay the night unless you please, though, of course, you know you would be awfully welcome. But I should like you to meet my—to meet Alice. And then perhaps you might tell me your honest opinion of—of of the other, too.' I vaguely demurred. He pressed me and we parted with a half-promise that I would come. He waved his ball-topped cane at me, and ran off in his long jacket after a bus. A letter arrived soon after, in his small, weak handwriting, giving me full particulars regarding route and trains, and without the least curiosity, even perhaps with some little annoyance that chance should have thrown us together again, I accepted his invitation and arrived one hazy midday at his out-of-the-way station to find him sitting on a low seat under a clump of double hollyhocks awaiting me. His face looked absent and singularly listless, but he seemed, none the less, pleased to see me. We walked up the village street, past the little dingy apothecaries and the empty forge, and, as on my first visit, skirted the house altogether, and, instead of entering by the front door, made our way down the green path into the garden at the back. 
a pale haze of cloud muffled the sun. The garden lay in a gray shimmer, its old trees, its snapdragoned, faintly glistering walls. But there seemed now an air of neglect, where before all had been neat and methodical. There was a patch of shallowly dug soil, and a worn-down spade leaning against a tree. There was an old broken wheelbarrow. The goddess of neglect was there. "'You ain't much of a gardener, Seaton,' I said, with a sigh of ease. "'I think, do you know, I like it best like this,' said Seaton. "'We haven't any gardener now, of course. Can't afford it.' He stood staring at his little dark square of freshly turned earth. "'And it always seems to me,' he went on ruminatingly, "'that, after all, we are nothing better than interlopers on the earth disfiguring and staining wherever we go. I know it's shocking blasphemy to say so, but then it's different here, you see. We are farther away. To tell you the truth, Seaton, I don't quite see, I said. But it isn't a new philosophy, is it? Anyhow, it's a precious beastly one. It's only what I think he replied, with all his odd, old, stubborn meekness. We wandered on together, talking little, and still with that expression of uneasy vigilance on Seaton's face. He pulled out his watch as we stood gazing idly over the green meadow and the dark, motionless bulrushes. "'I think, perhaps, it's nearly time for lunch,' he said. "'Would you like to come in?' We turned and walked slowly towards the house, across whose windows I confess my own eyes, too, went restlessly wandering in search of its rather disconcerting inmate. There was a pathetic look of draggledness, of want of means and care, rust and overgrowth and faded paint. Seaton's aunt, a little to my relief, did not share our meal. Seaton carved the cold meat and dispatched a heaped-up plate by the elderly servant for his aunt's private consumption. We talked little and in half-suppressed tones, and sipped a bottle of Madeira which Seaton had rather heedfully fetched out of the great mahogany sideboard. I played him a dull and effortless game of chess, yawning between the moves he generally made almost at haphazard, and with attention elsewhere engaged. About five o'clock came the sound of a distant ring, and Seaton jumped up, overturning the board, and so ending a game that else might have fatuously continued to this day. He effusively excused himself, and after some little while returned with a slim, dark, rather sallow girl of about nineteen, in a white gown and hat, to whom I was presented with some little nervousness as his dear old friend and schoolfellow. We talked on in the pale afternoon light, still, as it seemed to me, and even in spite of real effort to be clear and gay, in a half-suppressed, lacklustre fashion. We all seemed, if it were not my fancy, to be expectant, to be rather anxiously awaiting an arrival, the appearance of someone who all but filled our collective consciousness. Seaton talked least of all, and in a restless, interjectory way, as he continually fidgeted from chair to chair. At last he proposed a stroll in the garden before the sun should have quite gone down. Alice walked between us. Her hair and eyes were conspicuously dark against the whiteness of her gown. She carried herself not ungracefully, and yet without the least movement of her arms or body, and answered us both without turning her head. There was a curious, provocative reserve in that impassive and rather long face, a half-unconscious strength of character. And yet somehow I knew, I believe we all knew, that this walk, this discussion of their future plans was a futility. I had nothing to base such a cynicism on except only a vague sense of oppression, 
the foreboding remembrance of the inert, invincible power in the background, to whom optimistic plans and love-making and youth are as chaff and thistle-down. We came back silent in the last light. Seaton's aunt was there, under an old brass lamp. Her hair was as barbarously massed and curled as ever. Her eyelids, I think, hung even a little heavier in age over their slow-moving, inscrutable pupils. We filed in slowly out of the evening, and I made my bow. "'In this short interval, Mr. Withers,' she remarked amiably, "'you have put off youth, put on the man. Dear me, how sad it is to see the young days vanishing. Sit down. My nephew tells me you met by chance, or act of providence, shall we call it, and in my beloved strand. You, I understand, are to be best man. Yes, best man, or am I divulging secrets? She surveyed Arthur and Alice with overwhelming graciousness. They sat apart on two low chairs and smiled in return. And Arthur, how do you think Arthur is looking? I think he looks very much in need of a change, I said deliberately. A change, indeed! She all but shut her eyes at me, and with an exaggerated sentimentality shook her head. My dear Mr. Withers, are we not all in need of a change in this fleeting, fleeting world? She mused over the remark like a connoisseur. And you, she continued, turning abruptly to Alice, I hope you pointed out to Mr. Withers all my pretty bits. We walked around the garden, said Alice, looking out of the window. It's a very beautiful evening. Is it? said the old lady, starting up violently. Then, on this very beautiful evening, we will go in to supper. Mr. Withers, your arm. Arthur, bring your bride. End of Story 8, Part 1